Hello, hello, and welcome to this free episode of TF. It's it is the free one. Yes, Milo coming mm. in with his thing, but from far away. Look, I'm uh, never coming in with my thing. I just want to clarify yeah. that <laughs> for the listeners. Yeah, your Volcel, sure. We're all all remote today, uh, scattered to the four corners of. Uh, well, actually, really scattered to the two ends of Britain. Yeah, mostly, it's, it's I'm like not remote. Times. None of the rest of you turned up. <laughs> <laughs> And we have a great show for you today where we're going to be talking about the uh, the various strike waves that are happening in the U.S., but specifically looking at a couple different ones in Southern California and how a I'm not technically employing you app has been key to uh, companies trying to break one of them. To talk about that with us, it is Jacobin's labor relations correspondent. It is Alex Press. Alex, how's it going? Great. How are you guys? Oh, very, very well, thank you. And I believe this is your... This is like a, th- a three-peat appearance for you on the show, I think. I think so. Uh, I think this is so, three. You can get into yeah. the like mezzanine area of the lounge now. There's like <laughs> some slightly softer couches. Um. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a chocolate fountain up there. There's one drink pass up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, no, yeah. It's not even like a drink pass. It's, like, it's not a ticket. It's like 50% off the drink. Yeah. We are like a British airline in this situation. Mm. And so... Uh, even even the special like members clubs are like uh, shit. Right. Well, Hussein, mm. a British airline. Which one could you possibly be talking about? It's a mystery. <laughs> Some kind of way for British people to be in the air. You know, it is technically an Irish airline. Yeah. I hate I to couldn't say it, possibly but that, guess. you know, what could uh, be more British than that? However, um, before we get to our discussion of Southern California's goings on, uh, I have assembled a few. Tasty pieces of news updates, starting with mm. two things I love to talk about, uh, which is techno and wine. Uh, two things I love to talk about on the podcast: <laughs> techno um, and yeah, wine. I'm still on techno and yeah. wine, yeah. <laughs> Fine. Two of my special interests that are also frequent topics of the podcast. Don't say techno and Great wine. Great power relations oh. of the 18th century and. Oh, we still, work. Ah, uh, oh, okay. I was still stuck on techno and wine. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, aren't we all? No. Um, techno and wine. Colon. Great power relations of the 18th century. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 very far away from still writing an international relations dissertation, Milo. I'm sorry. No. One of the uh, things I wanted to talk about, of course, is as we all know, I am pretty obsessed with the ongoing. What the fuck are we going to do now that the Ponzi scheme has stopped? Ification of crypto. And uh, one that's uh, really, really testing the limits of what you can make an ification there, I feel. Oh, yeah. We are going to record an episode later today that has a much worse ification in it. Can you ificationify this noun? Uh, yeah, well, it's in- indeed. Uh, yeah. if, how do you ification uh, in Horto? But mm. uh, this, tra- this prominent trader said on the Lightspeed podcast about crypto. The biggest thing I think Solana and other crypto applications need is a focus on people who aren't currently in crypto, who have absolutely ah, no. We need more rubes. Absolutely, but that's the thing. No they ran under- out of those guys. Like they burned through all of them. They had their moment, and it's never coming back. You're never getting another Super Bowl commercial. Like it's just over. Well, specifically, uh, it was said that they need to have quote, and I'm quoting. This is a quote, direct quote. Absolutely no understanding of crypto at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, like most of the people in crypto, actually. Um, yeah, well, they need, they need, they need the Rube coin, the 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 ruble, Ooh. which was the original <laughs> Rube coin. Like, you want to buy a currency that's going to devalue as fast as crypto? The ruble historically was your best bet. <laughs> well, one of the actually, there's an interesting story where um, Coinbase released its own private chain, and then someone pr- created a currency on it called Bald, and then it was revealed. <laughs> I think it was to make fun of Brian Armstrong, who's very bald. No one um, It was revealed that this that this currency was created by a guy who was a known scammer and had pil- had bilked no. lots of people out of lots of money. So, That's what crazy. do you think happened when this was revealed? Um, is it nothing? No, quite the opposite. Oh, people is it, is it poured these... money in. They gave him money. Yes, correct. People cool. poured okay. money in because they thought that, oh, this guy's an amazing scammer. That way he's going to pour a bunch of money in and I'll get rich. <laughs> yeah, my money's in like one of the best scams going. <laughs> mm. I don't know about you, Pause, but I'm like invested with like a top tier Ponzi scheme. This guy yeah, inspected my wallet, but he said, then I can go out and inspect another 12 people's wallets and then I'll have even mm. more money than I did before. <laughs> paying, for the, paying extra for the luxury wallet inspector, he's got like slightly fresher breath, you know? Oh yeah, he's mm. got nice kid gloves. Mm. What he d- but then what happened is that the is that they were unable to bridge their money back from that chain onto the various main ones, and so he just took all of it. Crazy. Oh okay. That guy, the, the luxury wallet inspector, inspected everybody's wallets, and then he didn't come back. Yeah, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, you 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 got it right, um, Alice. Right, which is the moment that, that rubes aren't being brought onto the crypto space. And we can see that now that the numbers are small, they weren't being brought in by the applications. They weren't being brought in by utility. They mm. weren't being brought in by all of the great white papers or the tokenomics. They were being brought in because Mark Wahlberg and then a bunch of tech columnists like Kevin Roos said, hey, you should check this out. The numbers huge. And, and those guys also lost their money. Is the other, like, do you know what a Judas goat is? <laughs> it's 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 a slaughterhouse thing. You get a, a a friendly goat to like lead all of the goats that you're gonna slaughter up a ramp into the slaughterhouse, and then that goat's just fine. Like you you keep mm-hmm. that goat like on staff. He's on retainer, right? What they did was they ran out of Judas goats. They ran out of like people to lead into the the big crypto money slaughterhouse. And you know I I don't know how you come back from that. I like the Judas goat. The Judas goat's like, look, follow me up this ramp. I walk up it every day and I never get killed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The idea of bringing people in who have no idea, absolutely no understanding of crypto is, it just makes me think of like jury duty um, in the US where, you know, it's a police brutality case and they're weeding the, the people defending the cops are like asking every single oh, yeah. juror. Do you have any, do you think the cops are bad? Do you have any criticisms of the police? And when you say yes, they're like, yeah, they're off the jury. It's just, Do, you're, doing, you're left doing with the most, <laughs> the most absolutely ignorant kind of group of people. I, I heard about someone, so um, uh, someone I follow did jury duty uh, fairly recently. Um, and the, a guy tried to get out of it by saying explicitly, like, I am racist. Right, and w- had to be told it's a civil case between two white guys. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You so still good. have to do it. You're allowed. Hold to on. Be racist to Hold do on. This. Is one of them Irish? I think I can save this. <laughs> just, like, just like having to narrow it and be like, no, 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 different kind of racist. I'm like a black supremacist white guy. I'm gonna go like equally hard on both of them. Yeah, they should both <laughs> lose. I'm I'm the world's first black uh, white black Israelite. And I'm- <laughs> I should not be allowed on a jury. Yeah, and that's um, the only guy left who's still willing to put his money in crypto. 
Yeah. Uh, well, so we're going to see how that goes. It's going to be very funny as this whole thing keeps falling apart. Well, Speaking I was, of things I was continuing, told that every time crypto went down, it bounced back up higher. So it's going to be stratospheric at this rate. Yeah. It's every bounced time, back. Actually. People bounce back. Rolf Harris, there were others. So uh, another thing that um, is, if we want to talk about ongoing collapses, is of course WeWork. WeWork, uh, in addition to having some of the fartiest podcasting booths on um, in the city of London, uh, according to uh, our roving uh, WeWork correspondent, yeah, who shall uh, remain anonymous, yeah, <laughs> has warned in its recent financial results that it faces quote substantial doubt about its ability to continue as a going concern and will otherwise need to go through further restructuring or search for additional capital, which is a very polite way of saying we are completely. Fuck. It's over. They're ripping the podcasting mm. booths out of the offices as we speak. Mm. But they're trying yeah. to like boss all the farts to like make a WeWork scent. Um, <laughs> I am, I am, I am in a WeWork booth at the moment. Uh, it does smell of something. I don't know what it is, but every booth that they have here um, has a unique smell, and it's all horrible. Um, and I guess they can try and make money out of that. I don't know. Mm. Well. So what ha- what has happened is WeWork, being valued at its peak by SoftBank at forty seven billion dollars, is now worth one hundred and two point one eight million, and that's set oh, to probably be wow. less. Not investing advice. It, you ever think about how like essentially one guy and his wife, by getting too weird with it and not being good at business, like basic concepts of business, lost more money than you will ever make in like a hundred lifetimes. They need it. They need the help of a luxury wallet inspector. Yeah, they yeah. lost like the GDP of Indonesia in <laughs> enterprise value. Sorry, I've been playing oh, a lot of Indonesia's mm. fucked off. They've come round. They've come round asking me for their GDP. I'm like, listen, boys, it's gone down the back of the sofa. You know what it's like. <laughs> Getting your GDP cashed out like at a casino is a very funny bit too. It's like Britain's gonna get like you know it's it's like we're taking six hundred billion quid and like uh like chips out to a cashier. It's like cheers. I was in Jakarta. He said, "Listen, hang on to it for me. It's me GDP. Look after it, will ya?" <laughs> it's quite it's quite funny to sort of see this play out. Like as someone who works in a WeWork for like most of the week. Um, in the sense that, like, I remember when WeWork's whole thing was like, you know, we're a community and we have lots of like cool stuff, and like, you know, you have, you know, we'll sort of give you a load of things for free. Um, and like, we, from what I understand, like, when what we've talked about in the past, like, WeWork was supposed to be this place that kind of like, you know, it, it, it's more so still like, you know, uh, we're like a home, we're not really like a work office and stuff. And now, like, they desperately try to do those things, bearing in mind that they have no budget to do it. So, like, today, they were like, yeah, we have like a family yoga class uh, on our horrible balcony um, that starts at 7 30 in the morning. And I think like two what? people showed up. Bring and your then we weirdly got, flexible then, family to work in the morning. And then, well, what was very funny was that because no one, because like two people showed up to this, we everyone then got an email being like, "This WeWork is trying really hard to like, you know, uh, bring bring people together in the WeWork philosophy, and no one's doing it." Um, it was just like incredibly, incredibly, incredibly funny. But at the same time, like all the things that I would kind of say were nice about WeWork in the sense of like fruity water and like you know nice barista style coffee that's all gone they've gotten rid of all that so it is basically like a horrible horrible workspace that is very difficult to use and also they've sealed all the windows shut in this building because of suicide risks genuinely it sounds like having a really like extra high energy flatmate to be like, I made yes. you like lots yeah. of little like uh, bowls of cucumber water that I've just left around. <laughs> but 
like I worked really hard on this 7:30 a.m. yoga thing, and you just stayed in, and I, I, I actually find that that you know, so just like let me know when you're done being mean to me, right? Yeah. Listen, matey, I know you're having a tough time, and that makes it difficult for you to attend things like <laughs> yoga classes. And you know, more people they've got to check in with their blokes and say, you know, are you doing okay? That's why I've sealed all of the windows. I'm worried for you. Um, you might you might jump out of that first floor window to 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 a medium injury. But um, that's why I think it's actually really important you attend the yoga class because you could use a bit of Zen, mate. It's, it's just it's just really cruel to do to like you specifically, Hussein, to be like you must come to this outdoor yoga thing. Every like part, the doors are now sealed. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's an escape risk. room where you have to engage in the community. But I'd I'd like to issue to one correction. Uh-huh. By the way, I didn't mean Indonesia's GDP. I meant its export balance. And I looked up its export balance, and it lost <sighs> egg two on of it. your face, Riley. Fucking idiot, honestly. Yeah, it lost two of Indonesia's export balances. All right, so if, you, if you're looking twice. for a job as a podcast host, uh, we have a new <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. opening. Riley, Riley's fired. He's being managed out by HR. <laughs> All right now. <laughs> so before we carry on with the WeWork we stuff, though, I just want blood. I want to turn to Alex. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, 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 to see this thing crash and burn, how how surprised are you? Given that you, I know you thought it was going to work. <laughs> yeah, because I was an early investor. I mean, mm. that came out that came out later. Also, I want to say I knew he was wrong, and I was just being polite about the Indonesia thing. Um, so oh, if, it, was, it was like a splitting image yeah. situation. Yeah. Oh, so now, if, now the vultures are circling. <laughs> Everyone's suddenly like, I hated him the whole time. <laughs> I always thought he knew nothing about Indonesia. <laughs> he should never have been allowed to host a podcast. And so if there's an opening for the podcast host, um, I am available just to say. Yeah, it. let's do it. <laughs> Great. Um, but I, I, I want to talk a little bit about what... Um, what Adam Newman is doing now, hmm. because as you may recall, we spoke about this uh, late in uh, 2022, which is that Adam Newman, of course, not um, like the character of the Chumbawamba song, was not to be left knocked down, but in fact gets back up again, went on to <laughs> receive... And he also he wrote that song about cars, so yeah, he's a man of went, many talents. Went on to receive $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz to do We Work Again, but called Flow. But this one was going to be We Work But For Living. Is, is, so is like he we aware live. that We Work 2 shares its name with like a menstruation tracking app? <laughs> uh, no, I do not believe he is aware. Uh-huh. <laughs> but so, uh, if you recall, the four, the four pillars of the company are a branded technology-first management firm that runs the buildings, uh-huh. an asset management real estate funds that owns them, a financial services company that takes rent payments, uh-huh. and a mechanism that's going to take some of the community value and share it with the value creators in the community. Oh, it's just going to be like Elon Musk shit, where it's like, oh, you're the most like based epic, like Pepe on this like WeWork building. Have fifty dollars. <laughs> well, we don't know that yet. He hasn't been clear. Oh, what Back a surprise. when he talked about this, crypto was still very high, and so he said there would be some form of crypto wallet, like possibly, you know, the longer if you organize like a seven thirty a.m. bring your own family yoga retreat class mm. thing, then maybe you get like one token that lets you vote on like what color they light up the lights in the in the elevator. One like flow coin. Yeah. 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 And uh, but he says he wants to create an elevated experience for the residents saying renters can expect several unique experiences, including a very funny example. This is just a quote from Adam Newman, who was talking recently at a, at, a, at a panel. Is if you're in your apartment building and you're a renter and your toilet gets clogged, you call the super. 
if you're in your own apartment and you bought it and you own it and your toilet gets clogged, you take the plunger. It's the difference between feeling like owning something and just feeling like you're renting. Wait, so he's spinning, getting people to do the chores as it gives them a sense of ownership. A sense of ownership, we've, by the way. We've we've like lurched from like I just have like flatmate on the brain for some reason, but we've lurched from like anarcho like we've lurched from like very high energy hippie flatmate to sort of the worst features combined of like anarcho capitalists and communist squats, where there's a chore wheel, but also you get paid to do the chore wheel with crypto. As it would seem, that appears to be the closest thing I can approximate to the case. <laughs> what are, are these guys all smoking crack? Like, I just don't, like, just every week there's, like, a new business idea that makes no sense. Like, doing this podcast for years has just eroded my brain. So, if, you, if you're a renter, he thinks you don't even try the plunger on the toilet? No. <laughs> I, but, I mean, this is the thing. If, if I do anything, I'm calling my landlord to be like, uh, fix it, please. Like, anything. And he gets back to me so quickly that I find that very easy and rewarding to do. There definitely hasn't been, like, a crack in the ceiling of my hallway that's been there for the last seven years and counting. Yeah. If if you rent um and you're and you're having some trouble with your landlord and, and your toilet is blocked, I would advise try and try and lubricate the shit out of the toilet by tipping a full pan of baking grease down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I usually find that helps. Mm-hmm. I, think, yeah. I think what what's happened is that while coming up for this idea, so Adam Newman had to do a couple of things, right? Mm. To make this a valuable prospect for uh, investors to invest in, like Andreessen Horowitz, he's had to say we're not just going to be doing like bulk buying leases and retailing them out at a loss to like it worked before (laughs) it it did sure so he had to say okay we're gonna own it but then he's saying okay well how are we gonna disrupt renting because what's the main thing about renting it's that they don't own the property so we're gonna have to give them a sense of ownership and then i think what happened is because he's now hanging out with mark andreessen instead of masayoshi san Mm. uh he's now filled with a different kind of mania where instead of believing that he's going to save the world, he believes that he's going to discipline renters into like who I'm sure Mark Andreessen thinks like just have landlords whipped. When, like do, you, rent when whipped. do you think the last time Mark Andreessen used a plunger was? Well, how do you think he got his head like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's like it was like a forceps birth, but with a plunger. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they horrible, got him out of the pussy. Horrible obstetric accident. We're gonna we're gonna have to call the plumber. This guy's really wedged in there. <laughs> His mother's been drinking baking grease. We told her not to do that. He's in a he's in a baby berg. He's encased in wet wipes and congealed fat. There's only one man who can get him out. It's it's, it's fucking uh, Uncle Mick the plumber. Yeah. So. Uh, this is this is the closest that Newman has ever come to describing Flo's business model. This is from Fast Company. This is Fast Company quoting him. What we get so excited about the vision of Flow and the business of Flow is that it's actually a flywheel. If we can create a better experience in the building, the building performs better. If the building performs better, then we're able to raise more money and buy more buildings. Buy more buildings, we'll be able to run more buildings and more users in those buildings. By the way, they're not tenants, they're users now. Mm-hmm. And those users are going to start using our financial services application. If that financial services application is going to do what we want it to do and create services that are actually meaningful, then that again is going to drive more users. And then if we are able to take this value-creating mechanism, this is the this is the nut graph, 
and share it with the residents, a portion of the value, it's going to make them feel ownership before then saying the word ownership is a very complicated word. No, it isn't. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. It just, it, but, but the sense of ownership that I, I really appreciate a sort of like explicit corporate commitment to gaslight you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it was good shit. Yeah. Here's, did, uh, did anyone catch the core element of how this is going to work? It seems, which is that the more of a community you create by doing 7.30 a.m. bring your family yoga classes, mm -hmm. the more people come in and then they pay out to the people who already live there for creating that good community when new people come in with new money. Hmm. So you're Anyone? saying all we need is a continuously expanding user base. So let's say we <laughs> arrange these people in tiers, right? So the top tiers would be quite narrow, but gradually the tiers <laughs> would get wider until it forms a wide base. Now, legally, of course, we can't draw uh, a straight line around this shape. No, but you no, could no, do that at home. You know what it is? It's a scatter plot that just has a coincidental shape. That's right. <laughs> so, um, Alex, you, how do you feel about a sense of ownership of some kind of a we work apartment? I mean, that's what I'm living in right now in New York City. And, you know, um, I can't complain. Um, for instance, mm -hmm. we no, I have a normal apartment here. But, you know, I we there was a flood in the basement not long ago. And our landlord completely is non-responsive. And so there was a sense of ownership. You know, we each kind of had to take turns trying to, to clear the sewage out of the, the basement. Um, and so if that is what Newman has in mind here, I feel like he could go pretty far um, in the United States because people love to feel like they kind of are in it together famously here. People don't want to be on their own. Mm. The basement was flooded. They had to cancel Bring Your Uncle to Pilates. <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. A, bun a bunch of uncles treading water down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We gotta yeah, rescue hey. these uncles! <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of uncles treading water, but my God, did they feel like it was their water. <laughs> it wasn't, uncles, of course, their Jerry. water. The water was owned by Flo and Andreessen Orwell. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, water, Jerry. treading water in the basement of a, a WeWork, or a Flo, I guess, is, like, that's whole body exercise. And that's the Pilates philosophy. So yeah, aquarobics for uncles. Mm. Although there is there is one other element to this story, which is that if there's not, it, he has like several thousand units in in um, in the in the U.S. But you know where he's considering expanding? A certain new city that is being built in a Neon. certain kingdom. Fuck yeah! Come oh my on! God. Let's go! You, you can get an, a sense of ownership over part of the line. Mm. Which it makes sense because the line is sort of like a sense of a city, so... Uh, ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz said, Saudi has a founder, and while well, you don't call him a founder, you call him your royal highness, we are excited to bring Flo there. That's <sighs> so good. That's what, such a good line. When you think about it, I am basically Mark Zuckerberg, but I'm the Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> of being Saudi Arabian. Is such a funny fucking thing for MBS to suggest to anyone. In in Saudi Arabian politics, there's one CEO, and he is the quarterback of the House of Saud. <laughs> That's right. His Royal Highness Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> Newman said about the um about possibly building community centric housing in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he didn't say Neom specifically, but he talks about Saudi's startup spirits. So there's nowhere else he could really be talking yeah, about. Yeah, aside from like the new Maraba yeah. cube or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I do really like the idea of Saudi Arabia kind of being uh both like the mecca for startup like for like disgraced startup guys but also kind of like 
these startup guys making uh, uh what's it called doing birthright or like alia to yeah. to like neon <laughs> yeah they're gonna of learn like, and also gonna the learn, other mecca they're gonna learn about ibn saud and like how inspirational he was as a founder of a startup <laughs> <laughs> convincing adam newman that like doing doing the uh like praying around the Kaaba is actually like fucking you know pilates around the cube like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we tricked this man into becoming muslim <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it makes mecca the mecca of islam also i'm often saying say. this in in neom instead of going around a cube you walk or you go around the orb mm. <laughs> that's right uh I, I want to talk about one more news item before we before we go on to our main topic. This is a UK item, but Alex, it is deep in your wheelhouse um, because it is about, of course, something that the UK's Labour Department, the Department for Work and Pensions, has said that is quite alarming. Oh, that's unlike them. Over 50s, said Mel Stride, the DWP secretary, should consider delivering takeaways and other flexible jobs for Deliveroo, or as you would know it in New York, something like Uber Eats or Seamless or whatever. Oh, this this is giving me the bad feelings already. M MILF deliveries. Let's no, GILF deliveries is the problem. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, over yeah. 50s. <laughs> Since 2021, Deliveroo has recorded a 62% increase in riders aged over 50, uh, which are which Stride said were great opportunities, and it's good for people to consider options they might not have thought of. Is it though? <laughs> Saying you really do need yeah. to sensibly stop, take where you are in life, and assess whether you've got enough money to get you through with the kind of lifestyle and living standards that you're expecting. So, Alex, please, can we get some of the Teamsters over here? Uh, yeah, I think they're on their way. This just reminds me of something that we may have even discussed last time I was on here, or one time about how Amazon also recruits older people. I, for, I, was, I can't remember yeah, the Yeah, we name. did. The, the, the guy, there was this one guy who went into an Amazon warehouse uh, and like talked about how good it was to be working in the 70s. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Amazon hate people going to the toilet. Have they met old people? <laughs> Sorry, Alex, please carry on. No, no, that was all. It's just that it's reminding me of that completely. Uh, mm. Well, if you, and it's because, of course, right, it's, if you are going to demolish the anything that looks like a social safety net, if you're going to have like lots of the other jobs that people would often have into their fifties, like not unionized or with you know, with with less and less protections from like being laid off or fired or whatever, the, and you're also going to sort of try and never and, and, and never support anyone in any job ever, then of course you're going to have lots and lots of excess people who got pushed out of the labor market by COVID, many of whom were long-term sick and couldn't get back to work. Mm. Like that is just what happened. And the, and the idea, not just of some crackpot or the CEO of Deliveroo, but the idea of the government, a government minister is, what if we got people between the ages of 50 and 67 and we got them you know, basically on a on a job where they are cycling for eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like grandmas <laughs> dropping like flies in the street trying to get you your like chicken katsu or whatever. I mean, the main the main thing that strikes me is that anytime we talk about the economy and forecasts of the economy, and most of all stuff like house prices and inflation, all of that is couched in terms of like, well, it probably won't be a huge recession because unemployment isn't rising that much, and. The reason why unemployment isn't rising that much is in part because we have made your nan deliver your food to you. 
a kind of like a bit of a three card uh, trick, right? Yeah. Where, oh yeah, the job is still there. It's just the job is going to give you a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very depressing. It's it's like genuinely infuriating. All of us, none of us are ever going to be able to retire. Um, the people who are able to retire now are barely able to retire, and we're making that group as small as we can get it anyway. So, yeah, you're gonna have to work on the fucking Amazon thing or the Uber Eats thing until you die, as will we. Unless we get to keep podcasting forever. Yeah, yeah, so, podcasting from the fucking old folks home. So what, yeah. what Mel Stride went on to say is, what we're seeing here is the ability to log on and on and off anytime you like, no requirement <laughs> just, to have to do a certain number of hours. It's very funny to take that in isolation. What we're seeing here is the ability to log on, it's like... To log on and log off anytime you like, no requirement to have to do a certain number of hours, which is driving huge opportunities. It, it's it feel like Britain is the last place where anyone would talk about the gig economy like that. I mean, the thing is, right, when zero hours contracts as like a formal thing came in, there were a lot of sort of like older people who were like, uh, that'll teach the the feckless youth who don't want to work anymore what a real job is. And now it's coming for them too. Um and I don't say that in a particularly celebratory tone, it's more that like uh, no, there's, it's just everybody's going to end up like this, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the side that Deliveroo and Mel Stride are on is not the side of really anyone but themselves, and anyone, che- and anyone cheering for the immiseration that they're, uh, that they're pushing is eventually going to themselves be immiserated. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, you can't really blame people who are like in their 50s and 60s, because all their lives they've been taught that like, you know, you'd be more or less fine. Like, you, you had a good job, you work all the time, or whatever. Um, you know, you're going to get looked after in your sort of your old age, and you know it won't necessarily be as like barbarous as this, and it is. This isn't necessarily like pensioners or people <clears throat> who like are sort of reaching retirement who now have to sort of whose like circumstances have changed. Like I think for a while it's sort of been uh, like fairly, even if it hasn't sort of been said directly. Um, it is indirectly sort of been said that, well, yeah, you're going to have to work for probably until like your bones like can't take it anymore. But mm-hmm. the idea being that like, you know, there will come a time when your bones can't take it anymore. And then by that point, when you can't move, then we sort of might give you like a minimal sense of assistance. And now the position has been, well, you could never log off. So even if your bones don't function, um, you can do something in the gig economy. Mm. It's kind of a weird and ominous day when the DWP announced they were doing away with the retirement age and replacing it with this new metric of when your bones can't take it anymore. <laughs> Every year you'll come in and have your bones tested. When, when your bones can't take it anymore, then uh, you yeah. just get transitioned to a new form of gig economy work. Mm. So yeah, that yeah. you the can sort be... of Nick Cave scale for retirement. <laughs> You know, and the line is going up, but the line is going up so incrementally. But it's important that like you achieve that 0.1 percent. Yeah, and it's 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 a mirage. Like I think about the the three card Monty thing uh, you mentioned, Riley, in that like so much of this is not really going to be productive labor. So much of this is not even really going to like benefit anyone. It's just going to be like you may as well like phrase this more honestly and just start doing an old bastard corvée where you just have them build like a giant <laughs> pyramid or something where it's like oh yeah we don't actually really need this but you know it gets them out of the house you know yeah. so uh, before we move on i just want to ask alex what you think of like this being government policy or, or implied government policy right get a get out to work and get on your bike i mean what do you think i think of it i mean this is horrible right i mean this is like in america of course this is well advanced um, that the state it but it implicitly does that. I mean, for a for a government official to explicitly say we should 
be moving the old people into delivery jobs. In the U.S., they don't say that. It's just sort of assumed um, that that's what's going on, right? Because if you remove a social welfare net and any kind of, you know, help for the elderly, not to mention housing they can afford, um, it's no surprise when they show up at your door with your Chipotle. Um, but I, you know, I wish you guys luck over there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, I guess it's the it's almost like we have an A-B test of politicians saying explicitly that it's happening versus politicians couching it in nicer terms, uh-huh. which is it's it seems to make little difference. Um, but any case, I, I'd like to move on now to our core, our core discussion, which is, of course, about the uh, Southern California strike wave and the two example cases, of course, being the uh, hotel workers union that is on strike, which we'll discuss first, and then a little bit about the actors, the SAG after strike and parallels and commonalities between the two of them. But before we get into sort of each topic in turn, um, I, I have a question that I don't know if it's a stupid question or if it doesn't have an answer, but while union membership is at a low, Union popularity is at a historic high, and union activity seems to be experiencing either a significant uptick or at least a significant uptick in coverage. And is Southern California some kind of an epicenter of it? Because it does. there seems to be all the time new strikes being reported there. So, Alex, can you talk a little bit about how we got to where we are in terms of this? Yes. I mean, those questions taken together are like an entire book, um, but I will try to keep it really brief. Um so, you know, why why is union membership low while popularity is high? You know, my answer for kind of what we've seen in the U.S. over the past couple of years is, you know, one, there was already this immense inequality. Right. And there was this kind of intro- reintroduction of class politics through the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, which is not something young people have ever heard before, like that there are classes and you are the working class and your boss is profiting off of you. And that could change if you were to organize with your coworkers. And a lot of young people who then we now see organizing unions or going on strikes, that was sort of their what they their kind of takeoff point for involvement in the labor movement. And then you get the pandemic. Um, it sounds trite or too simple, but people really do say it kind of changed their understanding of their place within the class hierarchy. You know, their boss didn't care whether they lived or died or risked their health of their family. Meanwhile, the boss was sitting in an air conditioned, you know, either work from home office in the Hamptons or otherwise not at risk. Um, And so that was sort of a a confluence of things that led people to, say, take risks that they wouldn't previously have taken as far as organizing a union or otherwise kind of going on the offensive. Um, Why it's still why membership is still low is, you know, in short, there's been a a massive one sided class war in this country for 40 years. I mean, it's been going on longer than that, but there has not really been a a labor movement that's strong enough to fight back. So, you know, it's been declining for decades and there are immense legal obstacles and practical obstacles to to successfully organizing a union. You know, it's really remarkable just to give an example like. When you want to organize a union at your workplace, right, your boss has unlimited access to you and your coworkers throughout that process. He can constantly call you in. And as long as he doesn't explicitly threaten um, retaliation, he can tell you why the union is bad, right, why it's a bad idea. The union, on the other hand, has no legal access to anyone in the workplace. They can't enter the property. You know, if they start going to people's homes, the boss might start describing that as harassment and kind of whip people up. So there's just immense obstacles. So that that's my answer is that unfortunately people supporting unions doesn't meaningfully translate into them joining unions or otherwise organizing them because there's just a lot of legal obstacles in the way. 
Um, that said, obviously, I'm glad but that people support them, but it's for those reasons that I kind of laid out at the beginning. Um, as far as the Southern California kind of mini strike wave going on, you know, I think honestly, uh, some of this is just that the the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes, the actors and writers, are predominantly Hollywood-based. Um, but actually, it's it's really more widespread of a kind of uptick in activity than just Southern California. For instance, like the UPS workers in this country, of whom there are about 340,000 um, who are Teamsters, um, they came very close to a strike um, at the end of July. And that would have been nationwide, right? That would have been big cities and small towns. It would have been distributed geographically. Um, and there, there's quite likely going to be a strike by auto workers come September, um, 150,000 of them. And that will obviously be much more Midwestern. So I think actually you just happen to catch a moment where it's very Southern California. Um, and then, but that said, you know, the other thing I would say here is we'll go into the Unite Here, the hotel workers strike, but Unite Here is like a really kind of unique union, um, particularly kind of a fighting aggressive union. And so they are very well, well organized in Southern California with the hotel workers. And so that's why um, we're seeing it there. Yeah. Well, and also, by the way, you mentioned the um, you mentioned the uh, uh, UPS contract. I thought it was very funny to see tech guys like Jason Kalkanis be like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, they're all making 170K a year with benefits. But this is now we're just going to automate the jobs with AI. It's like, A, good luck. But B, it is very curious that any time wages go up or down, uh, someone like Kalkanis' answer is that means there's got to be AI. <laughs> yeah, because they previously, you know, before this, they would have been yeah. very down on AI. <laughs> but speaking of the of the tech angle, right? The thing that I think made me relatively interested in the Unite Here strike was the role of a company called Instawork, um, which says of itself, the future of hourly work has arrived. At Instawork, our mission is to create economic opportunities for local businesses and hourly workers around the globe. We believe everyone deserves a chance to thrive in their careers, and we're here to empower our users to make that happen. Together, we can redefine the future of hourly work and create a world where everyone has a chance to thrive. Alex... Tell me a little bit about Instawork and how it plays into the Unite Here activity. Yeah, people are not thriving. Um, so so Instawork comes into this strike because um, of this. I, I wrote a story for Jacobin about one particular worker um, named Thomas Bradley. And he was living out of his car. He'd been trying to break into the Southern California hospitality industry for decades um, for reasons that are very complex, black workers have basically been entirely excluded from hotel work. Um, and predominantly it's Latino workers in those jobs. Um, Thomas is black. He went onto his phone and he signed up for InstaWork, which is like a staffing gig economy app, right? Like you can go on there. I was looking at the interface um, before we recorded and, you know, it's, it looks like any other kind of social media site. You pick what kind of jobs you're interested in. They're in like cute bubbles that look like you're filling out a dating app profile. Um, and then you have to have recommendations to get the good jobs. So there's really quite a few barriers or hurdles to get over. Um, but in the end, you'll, you can say, I want to bartend. It'll list, you know, the bartending shifts that are open in your area for the next week or two. And you sign up. So it's just a, you know, Uber, but for jobs. 
Um, and so, so when you first get on the on the app, you've got to like do like XP grinding to get to the level <laughs> yes. where you're allowed to like bartend or whatever. You've got to spend like a whole day just like sucking dicks or something, and then it's like, okay, now you can bartend. What happens is you start as you start bussing, and then if you XP grind enough, you could just be CEO. So sorry, Alex. Yeah. Carry on. So Thomas um, picked up. He saw that this hotel had shifts for him that were open, the Laguna Cliffs Marriott Resort and Spa in Orange County, California. Um, and so he signed up for a shift. He shows up for the shift. This is early July. Um, and he sees there's a picket line outside of the hotel. And there's actually an active strike. It's the Unite Here Local 11 workers who have started engaging in rolling picket lines, which means, you know, they might strike one hotel one day and then another the next. It's to keep the hotels from knowing who's going to be struck when without them having to maintain a picket line, you know, indefinitely. Cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is Unite here, very kind of like guerrilla warfare um, type tactics. And mm -hmm. um, and so Thomas naturally is like, well, if there's a strike, then that makes me a strike breaker, which, of course, InstaWork had not mentioned when they were listing the shift. Um, and Thomas refused to cross the picket line. Um, he, he joined the strike. He, there are great photos of him holding a strike sign. Um, and of course, InstaWork automatically listed him as a no-show for the shift. And it then canceled the other shifts he had on his schedule for that week. Um, and w very soon, I don't know the exact timeline here, um, but it had suspended his account. Now, the problem is that it is a violation of labor law to retaliate against a worker for exercising their right to engage in legally concerted protected activity like going on strike. Um, and so the union has now, you know, filed a, a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. Um, but, but, you know, it was really interesting when I was, when I was writing about this. Um, I looked at some screenshots of Thomas Bradley's kind of messages to other people on the InstaWork kind of there are group DMs, right, for Insta workers because there's sort of a secondary shift, um, secondary market of shifts where workers sign up for shifts, not actually knowing if they can make those shifts because they just want to secure their spot. And then they realize they can't work them and they start trading with each other. Um, so it's this really kind of like, it's a genuinely secondary market. And so that's why they're all in contact. And, you know, the workers are saying, you know, we understand that we're being used as st strike breakers, but we also understand that we're automatically going to be penalized, just like Thomas was, if we refuse to cross picket lines. Um, so this is very much automated strike breaking. Um, and, you know, you talk to the hotel workers who are actually in the union and they're like, who are all these people? Just random people are showing up instantly, even though we had, didn't give the hotel warning about this strike. And that's what InstaWork and other apps like them basically are accomplishing here. And I have actually one question, which is, well, I have many questions, but one of them is, who is the action actually filed against? Because you're, it's not like you're an employee of InstaWork, right? Right. So you are, it's, you're filling out a W-2 for the, you know, InstaWork is the platform or mediator, right? And so you are, you are being employed, well, tech, not as a worker, not as an actual employee by the hotel, but you're a contractor to the hotel. Um, and so... InstaWork, though, by facilitating this is still automatically kind of it is it is an automatic violator of the NLRB. Um, and so as far as who the complaint was filed against, I have this down here somewhere. There are a few people that it was directed to. One was the hotel itself and then the, the ownership of the hotel, which is actually associated with the University of California. 
Um, and then I think also Instawork is named um, in the complaint um, because it is, again, their business model that is violating, that is facilitating these violations of the NLRB. And again, with no notice to the workers who are signing up to be used as strike breakers. And if you want to know if this is, if Instawork is going to make this more automatic, uh, the the um, CEO Samir Megani, whose Twitter is full of just pictures of him smiling with Instawork quote unquote pros, being like we're all in it together, um, has said that he is planning on expanding the use of, of AI in its worker and job matching algorithm based on skill and reliability. So soon, it's not just going to be automated strike breaking; it's going to be automated and unexplainable strike breaking. Right, so, sure. It, you know, on the yeah. one hand, you have the sort of like rolling picket. On the other, the chaos rune. <laughs> Essentially, w- yeah. workers might show up. How many hands and eyes and things like that those workers have? Well, don't worry about it. But you know, we're <laughs> constructing a gate, and that's going to like allow labor to move freely through it. Well, it's going to allow the uncles to get to the Pilates class. Mm. Yeah, we've got <laughs> right. uncles the likes of which you've never seen. Uh, and. Also, the other the the whole sort of Instawork uh, unite here uh, debacle brings up, of course, something you alluded to earlier, Alex, about um, the sort of racial dynamics of the Southern California hotel industry, which is that when a strike needs to be broken, those hotels can find qualified black employees, even though they say, quote, in this I'm quoting from someone you quoted, a housekeeper you spoke to. There are no African-Americans at the hotel. There are no LGBTQ people we know of at the hotel. But the day that app brought workers, suddenly they could bring them in. Hmm. Well, see, if, if, you're, if you're gay, you are like able to clean a hotel, but only in an emergency. <laughs> Just, I mean, yes, to underline the point, like Thomas is, he told me he had been trying to get a you know, full-time hotel job, a permanent job since he was 18 years old. Now he's 41 years hmm. old. And he, he and he went quite at length, you know, it's quoted in the piece briefly, but about his experiences and his his confusion because he felt like he was being singled out. He didn't understand what he was doing wrong, why he kept not getting the permanent job offers. Um, And that is decades. And he went to culinary school. You know, he went to the L.A. Trade Tech College and studied culinary arts. Um, So the fact that they overnight now are bringing in. You know, as far as I could tell, a lot of these people who are showing up as strike breakers, it's majority black. Right. And so the hotels have said in the past that they they cannot find qualified black workers. And that's why they you know, there are only Latino and white workers, um, especially at the luxury hotels like this one. Um, And then, you know, Thomas said he couldn't believe it because he's just watching workers with no experience at all getting trained, you know, immediately um, because they're being used as strike breakers and they're totally capable of doing the job. So this is just like an immense frustration and extremely upsetting, um, you know, and has a very, very, very bad history in the United States as far as black workers being used as strike breakers um, and that being the only way they're even let into certain um, employment situations. Essentially, what we've done is we have automated one function of a robber baron. <laughs> That's more right. Or less. Yes. Um, the Robo you, Baron. There's also a, there's an end of this story Come that's on. also worth discussing. That's good stuff. We, 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 good fucking, stuff. We, 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 we got ChatGPT to like do a racialized divide and conquer. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird, huh? How you how we apply all of these new technologies to old problems, and they keep producing the same fucking answers. Yeah, crazy. It's almost as if yeah. they're, they're sort of confined by some kind of invisible structure. Oh no. Ah well, probably nothing. Um, anyway, by the, the invisible orb. 
Yeah, there is also a, at the end of this story, before we switch on to SAG-AFTRA, another sort of item that's worth discussing, which is that ultimately Bradley goes on to find a union job at a hotel that accepted the contract from Unite, Unite here rather, and is now working to stop other InstaWork pros from crossing those same picket lines. Mm. Yes, I I got to say, I rarely do my stories have happy endings, um, but but I was very surprised. You know, I got on the phone with him on July 24th, um, which was about a week or two, you know, after this ordeal had been playing out for him. And I actually very much, I think, annoyed the union staffer who was helping, you know, faci- contact, put us in contact um, by starting with asking what he how his day was and what he'd been up to. And he explained that he just had finished orientation. And so the big surprise reveal that they had gotten him hooked up with the job was destroyed by me um, in my very good small talk asking, how was your day? Um, And so he had had just finished his first his orientation shift at the Westin Bonaventure Hotel and Suites in downtown L.A., which is um, still to this moment the only hotel that has reached a tentative agreement with Unite Here Local 11. Um, The other hotels that are still being struck um, there's something like 60 properties across Southern California. Um, and I won't go into all of it, but just to be clear, like the workers key demands are about raises because the cost of housing has become so completely impossible for them to afford in Southern California. So they want the big raises and they want the hotels to kind of sign on to work with the workers and the union on kind of policy solutions to the housing crisis. Um, naturally, the hotels are um, completely oh, I have some of those. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, why don't you so, just live with 10 of you in a big bed? <laughs> but so Thomas is currently, knock on wood, as far as I know, employed um, as a banquet runner at that hotel in downtown LA. Well, um, yeah, and I, I, we will link both of the articles that we're discussing here in the description. I do recommend checking out that article. Uh, I want to move on to um, the SAG-AFTRA strike, which you've also been covering. Um, around the same time. And I want to open with uh, what the executive vice president, Ben Whitehair, told the crowd of actors and their supporters from stage. The entertainment industry is with you. Wall Street would love for us to think that factory workers, delivery drivers, hotel workers, writers, and actors have nothing in common. But you all know that is not the case. And throughout your article, what becomes very clear is that it is specifically this combination of Wall Street and Silicon Valley that is attempting to, whether through platforms like InstaWork or um, you know, some kind of a heretofore undescribed AI system to just digitize and keep reusing, I don't know, Michael Shannon forever, um, that they're, they, they <laughs> no have the same actors, goal. Only Michael Shannon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all it's like fucking being John Malkovich but it's all Michael Shannon and specifically Boardwalk Empire Michael, Michael Shannon it's I don't know terrifying. why he was on my mind I don't the, know why he was on my Fast mind Fast and but. Furious is fucking weird everyone's <laughs> Michael Shannon anyway, anyway what um, what were so I, I think the question right we have and this is you know, we've talked about the WGA strikes before with um, one of the striking writers but um, I think, Alex, just as you know, you've been reporting on this as from the labor beat, what are the studios, the AMPTP, experiencing? What do they want to do? Why are they sort of crying poverty? Other than the fact that they're lying, but what's their logic for crying poverty? And uh, also, you know, why are these people not exactly the best bedfellows? A lot of questions for you. Why are they crying poverty? I mean, this is what every employer does in a contract yeah. negotiation situation, right? Um mm-hmm. They, they pl- what are they pretending is the problem? Yes. Um, so, I mean, so the one thing you can say is that they are correct that the streaming model probably is not sustainable. So they're saying, look at 
how bad the thing, <laughs> look at how bad these things we made are. You can't possibly expect us to be making any money off of this. Um, and that is pretty much the argument. You know, I spoke to a bunch of people on the picket lines who are like, we don't have to pay. They're the business guys. Why are we paying for how shitty their product is? Um, and of course, there is still money there. Like there, the revenue is there. And certainly, you know, it's not facetious to point to the CEO's salaries, which are, you know, 25, 50 million. David Zasloff, the Warner Brothers CEO, you know, two years ago is almost 250 million. Um, but, you know, what they're kind of pointing to as the sort of more interesting or kind of underlying conflict leading to this, this strike um, by both the actors and writers is that, you know, Netflix set up a mirage, right? So Netflix, with its head start on the other streamers, you know, sort of bought a bunch of back catalog, back libra library licensed stuff from the other studios, put them on their website. Um, and they said, you know, just for, for $10 a month, you can cancel your cable. You can watch infinite shows forever and it's going to be great. And we won't have any ads. And every other studio started trying to copy them only to then realize, you know, it's like they ran out past the cliff um, in a cartoon. And then they realized that Netflix also had no more land under it. And now they're all falling down. Right. Um, and they just didn't realize that there was no more, you know, sort of there was no more runway for them. Um, Netflix obviously is now instituting ads and canceling, not letting you use your like ex-boyfriend's um, Netflix password anymore and things like that. Um, and so there is a real question of what happens when they went all in on this business model that was um, unsustainable. Um, but that said, you know, the I think the workers here are very right that there's plenty of money to be had and they can just to try to kind of respond to Wall Street and investment pressure um, by turning around and squeezing labor is just not realistic, especially in an industry where these workers are so well organized in their unions. And so in many ways, right, it's the, the same the same kinds of story where Silicon Valley builds Netflix. Wall Street then looks at Netflix and tries to find the net, next Netflix turns Hollywood into Silicon Valley, everyone forgets how to make movies, then all of a sudden we turn the gravity up on the economy and then we everyone realizes all at once that 11 billion people didn't watch Spencer Confidential and that we actually are going to... Look, and, and that I there watched is going it 11 billion times. <laughs> okay, look, I'm sorry. It was a good movie. So uh, you quote uh, Mike Schur, a striking, striking writer, who says, no one's running the town used to be able to say, who are the five people that run Hollywood? And everyone could reel off those names. But now nobody is running Hollywood. So when we say that, is that based on this sort of building on that idea of everyone kind of followed the leader who turned out to be as blind as them? Yeah, that's part of it. And the other thing Mike was getting at here is that, you know, the, the quote before that is he, and I guess to give some context here, Mike Schur is the creator of both The Good Place, Parks and Rec, um, he was a writer on every season of The Office. You know, he's like the most successful television writer, you know, in America, uh, more or less. And so this guy, you know, has this. He's been in the WGA for decades. He's kind of seen this transformation um, and he's extremely upset. Right. He's joined the negotiating committee for this round of contract negotiations. Um, I saw him at the UPS rally that we were talking about that you opened with um, that quote from Ben Whitehair. Um, and so these workers are really across divides, getting to know each other well. Um, but the thing Mike said to me before that quote was, you know, he said, there used to be people running these companies who thought of themselves as stewards of the industry. You know, I sat, I'm sitting in a chair that Jack Warner sat in, 
Um, I have a responsibility to this history. And he says, now these guys are tech bros from Cupertino. They're not people that care about Hollywood, right? And so he's sort of saying that it, you'll hear this complaint in you know, every other industry. I'm sure you guys have talked about this, that no longer is the kind of specifics of a art or product or type of work being considered. Um, but instead, they're sort of outside tech guys, Silicon Valley, um, coming in and squeezing this company or this industry like it's any other kind of thing that needs to be fixed, get rid of the inefficiencies, suck out money, and then move on. Um, and so yeah, no one's in control. Efficiencies like making a good movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be doing that. Yeah. It's a waste of money. The days <laughs> of the big podcast barons are over, you know? <laughs> And guys, 11 billion people watch Spencer Confidential. People don't want good movies. They want movies where Mark Wahlberg fights Asimo. I got to tell you, I mean, the best example of this that I can think of is there was some profile of David Zaslav, that CEO for Warners, um, a few years ago. And I forget if he's they're on his yacht or someone else's yacht. And he's with a bunch of celebrities. You know, I think Oprah is there and whatever. His usual, his little inner circle crew. And they put on an episode of, I think, Fleabag. And there's a sex scene. Oh, wow. And David Zaslav pauses the show. I'm on a yacht. <laughs> and he's saying, we we shouldn't watch this. We can't watch this. You know, it's so disturbing and upsetting. And Oh, he's a tumbler like Puritan. <laughs> They basically end up holding a vote about whether to watch it or not. I really should look up which article this was so I get the details right. Um, whoa, whoa, it's two adults having sex. Gross. <laughs> it's a guy who not only doesn't care about the industry, but seems to actively hate television and film. And that's the guy in charge. Mm. Well, it, it makes sense, right? When you're in the business. Now, not to glorify, obviously, the old studio system, right? It's one of these things of of the, these things getting progressively worse. They were bad before, but now they're they're bad without even having the good byproduct of movies. Where it's like, if you're in the business of making enchantment, and if you're in the tech industry, you're in the business of disenchanting everything, that's how you end up with the 90th Marvel TV series that three people watch and somehow costs a, like, apocalypse now amount of money to produce. Yeah, I, I would hate for people to come out of this thinking that the, like, firm stance, the party line of Trash Future is that, like, it's good when a guy in Jodhpur has, like, 3,000 horses killed in order to, like, make one scene that then gets cut. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not that like the old ways were good, right? As you say, it's just that they were they were like they were involved in the thing. Yeah, the old ways were at least ways. Yeah, I mean, I speak to I quote in that article another WGA member, this woman Rachel Alter, um, who was in her twenties. I can't remember exact exactly how old she'd worked on a bunch of shows: Stars is Heels, Netflix is The Society, and Marvel Studios Loki. Um, and she had worked in these mini rooms that are a big issue kind of at the bargaining table as well, where mm -hmm. instead of having a traditional writer's room where there's like six writers, eight writers on a stable contract for the extent of the season. Now it's, you know, maybe one showrunner um, tasked with holding the whole thing together, helped by a few younger and a bunch of guys from InstaWork. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The one man that makes Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> I'm they very overworked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ted says something warming off to the dance. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he meets a man on a bus and he's nice to him in a folksy southern way. I've not, I've not got time to go up with what Ted Lasso would do. I've, I've employed 14 guys in Vietnam. 
<laughs> They're trying to decide what Ted Lasso. They don't speak English. I'm running it back and forth through Google Translate. Ted Lasso sounds like he's come from a different dimension. <laughs> I mean, yes. Basically, yes, what Milo was saying, though, that there are now like five people who are successful and they're way overworked. And then there's a bunch of people who like barely are, you know, are allowed anywhere near a studio, but technically are, you know, employed in the film industry. Um, but I just I brought up Rachel Alter just to say that she described the work she does as basically she says it's like a machine assembly line. And she said art suffers, right, when you're overworked and taxed this way. And I often find myself saying as someone who hates most television that comes out these days, like if you hate it and you hate the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's only going to get worse if these people lose their strike um, because they're trying to, mm. I mean, at risk of sounding romantic, like they are attempting to assert the value of human creativity and art against an algorithm, right? And uh, they've been losing for a while and we've seen the result, which is just the most garbage fucking films in television. It doesn't make any sense. Why is his name Lasso? He's not a fucking cowboy. He's a football coach in England, but he's a yak. It doesn't. Try explaining this to people in Indonesia. They're already pissed off about their GDP. <laughs> but flipped up with their trade balance. Yeah. Um, but this is something actually that we've talked about before as well, which is. Whenever we talk about striking railroad workers in the UK, for example, or striking teachers, what you see time and again is that they're striking to preserve the quality for many reasons. One of those reasons is to protect the quality of the thing they're doing. You know, the striking the striking railway workers are trying to make sure that there's someone there in the train station so that they can be there in the train station getting paid, and so that if you fall down, you don't just have to wait to die. Because yeah, they care about the thing, because like you know, the labor tends to like what it creates for the most part. Yeah. Um. And you know, one of the thing I want to get in before we sort of wrap up here as well is what makes the SAG-AFTRA proposal kind of distinct from the um, WGA proposal, or sorry, the SAG-AFTRA um, sort of grievances, different from the WGA grievances, um, are that, for example, the it's not just they want to use the studios want to use AI to generate um, uh, scripts, but they want to be able to get pay someone for a day to scan them completely and that companies can then own that scan and use it forever, thereby making any background actor or up to minor character uncastable forever. But also it means that we're just going to have the same small number of character of characters walking yeah, in and out of screen. And, and by small forever. number, we mean one. Michael Shannon, do not go into the scanning room, please. God, <laughs> we cannot do We can't replace every character on Ted Lasso with Nelson Van Alden. We can't do it. <laughs> They're telling me to use Michael Shannon. An entire football team cannot be composed of Michael Shannon. You've got this American guy. He's talked to 14 people. They're all Michael Shannon. He got on a bus. Everyone on there was Michael the, the Indonesians are very confused, and rightly so. They're getting paid £3.50 an hour. They can't understand this. So, also, I do like the idea that like some fans of the Ted Lasso team have opinions about which Michael Shannon is better in defense and which is better as a striker. <laughs> oh, yeah, the yeah. box to box Shannon, you know. <laughs> no, that's the keeper Shannon. 
Um, but this is one of the this is one of the issues, right? Where you, they're trying to just take and mass produce people in identifiable ways. Whereas the WGA issue was they want is that the studios want to take writing and recombine it in ways that are unattributable. The um, with actors, they want to just take someone and be able to use them sort of forever, right? That that strikes me as a kind of uh, it, it's a two sides of the same coin essentially. It's the same attributability versus no attributability. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the the AI is definitely a far more active present threat for the actors and performers and certainly voice actors than it is for the writers. The writers are sort of just being sort of forward thinking about the threat being posed because they're the ones that traditionally have always done this. The last writer strike was about getting new media, i.e. streaming, covered under WGA jurisdiction. Because even though at the time it was basically not used whatsoever, the writers were like, this is going to be, you know, this technological innovation is going to be the future of the industry. And so likewise, they're sort of trying to get it in writing now um, before AI becomes a threat to them. Whereas the actors and the voice actors and the background actors and the stunt performers all very actively have seen that it can be used Um that there, you know, there are sort of the most well-known examples like the de-aging in The Irishman um, versus, you know, what the kind of future looks like, which is, you know, you scan a background performer, all of a sudden you don't need them anymore, um, which, you know, that they're out of work forever. And this is the majority of SAG's membership, right? It is not mostly Tom Cruise. It is mostly um, the person who you can't possibly name but have seen in 25 different movies. Um and, you know, and I think when you think about the logic here, it's actually, you know, it has way bigger implications, right? You don't need as many actors. All of a sudden, you don't need costume designers and you don't need, you know, art production. You don't need hair and makeup because you're not using real people. Um, and so really, all of a sudden with this, um, you know, if it goes in without regulation and without any kind of limitations and informed consent, all of a sudden you have basically wiped out what remains a mat, like a gigantic industry in this country, you know, you're hitting all of these unions. And so there's a reason that they also are kind of connected here is they're all facing this threat. Yeah. And uh, fundamentally, right, this goes back to what we talked about when we talked about the WGA strike as well, which is the fantasy of the tech executives who have been take it, b- taken to sort of helm these studios and their immediate toadies is that they will be able to make movies by just thinking of what would be profitable and never having to interact with anyone else ever except a chatbot, essentially. We're going to get, well, we're finally going to get the NFT ape film that was going to happen and then sort of happened but didn't, right? <laughs> the world is crying out for it. Mm-hmm. Starring Michael Shannon. The, the world wants the ape universe starring Michael Shannon. Um, I was, I mean, I was going to ask like very, one very quick question which sort of related to all of that, which is kind of not necessarily like the end game, but do the sort of like, do the tech guys in the situation feel like they have the upper hand to a degree that... I, uh, the, imp- the impression that I sort of get is obviously they don't give a shit about like any of the artistic quality and I feel like a lot of them like are much more open to sort of admitting that in like these weird ways like they sort of say that oh you know like it's just kind of we're, we're trying to like break down elitism and so on and like you know AI will empower people to do that but the reality sort of seems to be that their calculation is most people have to use these shitty systems anyway um and like they're so and they're sort of predicting that like as ai becomes more ubiquitous um or they feel like it's going to become more ubiquitous like they're going to win purely on the basis that like the world is sort of being built in their favor and i wonder whether um the strategy that 
the studios are kind of playing, especially the pro AI studios are playing towards, is one where they're making the same kind of calculation. And if so, will these kind of like how are these strike efforts kind of addressing that broader structural problem if they are at all? Yeah, I mean, the as I said, with the example of how the writer is kind of struck in advance to get new media and streaming under their jurisdiction last time, you know, both the actors and the writers this time are are sort of looking and saying, yes, the world is being kind of built in the favor of introducing this new technology. Right. They can't be Luddites about this technology. Um, But if you get it in writing that, you know, for what SAG is off is asking for here, you know, that there would be informed consent. That a performer, when they, you know, right now the studios are proposing, or at least at their last before the negotiations broke off, they were proposing that like a performer would sign saying they're okay with being scanned and having their likeness used in perpetuity um, for whatever reason they want in exchange for, you know, half a day or a day's pay for that scan. Um, But the studios were like, see, they would have to agree, right? We're getting consent. Um, and of course, everyone in the union responded by saying, you know, it's not really consent if this very struggling performer maybe is desperate for a job and realizes that if they don't sign, then the studios will just hire someone, a more desperate actor who will sign that. Um, and so I think they're really just trying to build a wall out, which is often what unions do is like, you know, it's not that they're anti-technology, but rather they understand that technology if it is able to be deployed by an employer um, without any restrictions, will be used to to save on labor. And they're saying, let's actually use it for maybe more socially useful and less harmful um, kind of ends. Ah, those hippies. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's as good a place as any to uh, call this episode to a close. Alex, I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It's been great. Oh, yeah. Always a pleasure. I'll see you all in the mezzanine, you know. I'll be, I'll be drinking the the, <laughs> yeah. the one Jello shot. Me and whatever other guests um, have hit three or yeah, more. Yeah, having a round of shots with all the Michael Shannons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, you're, you're having you're having a round of shots with Patrick Wyman, who is still there. Mm. <laughs> he we can't get him, get him to leave. He won't do it. We've yeah. scanned him. I think he's been <laughs> sleeping there. It's like really, I. Mm. <laughs> All right, all right, Gareth, Dennis, you can go anywhere you want, but you can't stay here. <laughs> anyway, um, and also to remind all of you that if you are in Edinburgh and you want to see a show around lunchtime, Milo Edwards is performing Sentimental, his Who's comedy show. Yeah, tomorrow I'll be being played by Michael Shannon, so do pop <laughs> yeah. along and see uh, that. And, and, of course, if you want more of this podcast, there's a second episode every week on the Patreon for $5 and then further content at the $10 tier. Um, we don't have any live shows coming up, so go with God, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll tell you when we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am. That All right. right. Hey, shorter plugs than usual. So once again, thank you, Alex. Thank you to our listeners. And uh, we will see all of you on the bonus episode in just a couple short days. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.